0: Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment and thank you for tuning into our church's podcast. This week's sermon is from our series Alpha and Omega. To learn more information about Sturkey Hills, you can find us at sturkey.church. Oh, and don't forget to hit subscribe to our podcast so that you can always stay up to date with our latest messages. We're so thankful for all that God has been doing in the life of our church and the part that you play in it. Thank you for listening and have a blessed day. Amen. Thank you guys for that wonderful worship. Amen? Amen. Now, what worship should do is prepare your heart to hear God's word spoken into your soul. And today, God has a powerful message because we're in a transition place in the book of Revelation. So, if you have your Bibles or your device, open it to Revelation chapter 2. Now, chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, uh, um, Jesus tells John the Revelator, he says, Listen, he says, Write what you have seen the things which are, and the things which must take place after this. So in chapter 1, we we find a picture of the resurrected Jesus, a new view of the King of Kings. So we see that, and if you'll remember now, John, it went from God for and to Jesus, whispered through an angel to John, and then last week at the end of chapter 1, Jesus steps up to the plate behind John the Revelator, and he begins to speak, and you'll remember When John turned around, man, he was amazed. I mean, he was knocked on his face, just astonished at Jesus. And if you'll remember, he had hair that was white like wool and snow. He had eyes uh, eyes like fire or flame. He had a white robe and a gold sash. He had a, a sword coming out of his mouth. And he had bronze feet. And that would make anybody fall on their face. But then Jesus does what only Jesus can and will always do. He comes up, puts his right hand on him, and he says, hey, Don't be afraid. Now, that's who Jesus is now. So he has written what he saw. Now he's going to write the things which are. Look at your neighbor and say, the church age. age. That's what the things which are are. And he's going to write seven letters on a scroll that are to be distributed among seven churches in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. And this scroll, each church would receive a copy of this scroll. And so today we are going to look at the first church of the seven, the church at Ephesus. And you've heard of Ephesus before if you've read the New Testament. The book of Ephesians written uh, to Ephesus. Uh, First and second Timothy. Timothy was pastoring at Ephesus. It's a church that we're familiar with. But he's going to describe today, um, 2,000 years ago, he's going to describe a church. Called Ephesus. Now let me explain the reason there's seven churches. Is that all the churches that Asia Minor had, which is modern-day Turkey? No, it's a huge area, and it was densely populated. There were not only seven churches. Why not six? Why not eight? Why not ten? Because seven is what completion and perfection. So he is writing a perfect letter to the full, to the complete and perfect church. Now it's not perfect in terms of who they are and what they do. It's perfect because it is. The bride of Jesus Christ. So here's what happens. He he begins in, 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 in Ephesus. And we're gonna just discover Ephesus today, and then we'll do two churches next week, and two churches the following week, and then that'll move us up closer to the end of October, and we'll have a pause before we move into the tribulation period. Now, the, the churches represent, they are real, they were real churches. Okay, so he's writing to a real pastor of a real church and a real group of body coming together as a local church. But it also paints a picture, as you progress through it, of the church age over time, how it goes from the church at Ephesus to the church at Laodicea, how it uh, degresses as history goes along. It also paints a picture of any particular church on a given Sunday. It may be the church of Ephesus. We may look like the church of Ephesus. We may look like the church at Smyrna. We may look like the church at Thyatira, or whichever church. All of the churches around the globe take on this personality, much like what we see here in this letter, in uh, to the seven churches. Also, it points to a, it points and, and and describes a picture of individual people within the local church. How do we know this? Because at the end of every one of these letters, he says. He who hath an ear, let him hear. In other words, if the shoe fits you, wear that shoe, okay? He describes individuals in every church all along the way throughout history. So as we read these letters, as we study these letters, I want you to allow the Holy Spirit of God to speak to your heart. And if the shoe fits, wear it. Tell your neighbor, if the shoe fits, wear it. Now, in all of these letters, they have a lot of common ground. Sometimes one or two components will be left out because it doesn't apply to the church, but typically they'll have a commission, they'll have a a character, they'll have a commendation or things they do good, they'll have condemnation, things that they aren't doing well, they'll have a correction, and then they'll have a call, and lastly, they'll have a challenge. Almost all of these seven different church letters have all of those. Now, with the exception of a couple times, one is left out. But they all have these primary components. Now, here's what's crazy about it. I can look up today in 2018, and I can take you to churches around the world that are extremely, extremely struggling churches. They are on the threshold of closing the doors for the last time. Over 4,000 in America this year will close for the last time, Baptist churches. Excuse me, 4,000 churches, not just Baptist, but in America alone. Uh, just a few weeks ago, Kyle and I went to a conference, and there was a man down there who pastors a large church in Florida. And he said, his name is Ted Trailer. He says, uh, yeah, we have the opportunity to revitalize the church. And he said, these two guys came and talked to me and said, hey, our church is struggling. It's not doing very well, and your church is a healthy church. We would like for your church to come take us over and revitalize our church. And so he said, I really, that's not what God has put on my heart. I don't want to do that. And they said, you really need to do it. Well, he said in that moment, the Holy Spirit just kind of convicted him and said, you need to look at this. So the two guys began to de- describe their church. And he said, well, how many people do you have? How many members?" So he said, we got 12 and a half. And he said, 12 and a half? You now, what's the deal with a half a person? What is that? And he said, well, he's in the hospital, and he's on life support. We don't know if he's going to make it, but we're counting him anyway. We're giving him 12 and a half. Listen to this. He went to visit this church. The worship center, listen to this, seats 900. Once upon a time, this church was a vibrant, Jesus-preaching, gospel-sharing, a life-changing entity of God, and now it's whittled down to nothing but 12 and a half people. <laughs> I don't want the church at Sturkey Hills to become that, and if you end up, if we do become, we're not going to become that. If it does, I ain't going to be here, okay? If, I am, if I'm here and I'm leaving it, fire me before it gets to that. Okay? Amen, Brother Joel. Okay? We do not want to be there. We will not be that. Okay? We will not. So, how do we prevent? How do we move forward and not back? Because it's easy to move back. Do nothing, move back. So, we're looking today at the church at Ephesus. If a church could ever be successful, it should have been the church at Ephesus. Well, well, why? because it was in the city of Ephesus, and it was like the New York City of Asia Minor. It was the happening place. Well, why was it a happening place? Because it hosted a large harbor where ships could come in and bring goods and take goods out to exchange around the world. It was a money pit. Not only that, it had over 250,000. Some estimate a half a million people in this one city it was thriving. It was a metropolis. But listen, why it should have been a great place for a church? Because it hosted the temple of Artemis. Artemis, known also known as the goddess Diana. This this temple. Listen to this. This temple was 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, 60 feet tall. It had 130 massive stone columns around it. 37 of those wrapped in gold and jewels provided by the kings of the area who would come and worship this goddess Diana. Inside this temple, they would have temple prostitutes. They would provide orgies. They would provide alcohol and other things to alter your mind. They would house or be a refuge for criminals who had not yet been arrested. It was so full of filth. This city, people came from everywhere. Not, listen, not only was there a harbor, there were four major highways rolled right through Ephesus so people could come to this temple to worship the goddess Diana. Now that's the world they lived in. It's a great place for a church. Okay? It's like going to Las Vegas. Okay? It's a good place for a church. Now I'm not saying you go to Las Vegas. Unless you're going to plan a church, it will support you. Okay? Uh, it, was, it had every reason to, to be a great church. Not only that, listen to the leadership. Yeah, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going ahead and tell you. Your church, your church is not defined by the leader. Don't get me wrong. Everything rises and falls with leadership. I understand that. But this church is not about the pastor. This church is about Jesus Christ. Okay? And if you, as an individual, ever put your pastor above the real reason there is a church, then it's a sin for you to do that. And I'm begging you. And how do, I, how do I wonder if maybe the church sometimes becomes about about the pastor? Because the second Baptist, if Brother Mike is out and he announces it, often people say, Well, Brother Mike's out. I'm out. Right. Here at this church, if I'm out. Kyle's going to preach for me. He's going to do an excellent job. If somebody else, people say, Well, Brother Joel's gone, so I'm not going to go. I don't know if that's because you, you, you're afraid I'm looking. I'm taking names. I am taking names. They tell me you don't come. I'm not here. Okay? <laughs> so you just must well come on. Okay? It's not about the pastor. It's about Jesus. Now, listen to this church. How do I know it's true? How can I nail that? drive that home? church at Ephesus had some pretty good leaders. They were straight out of the big league. I call them the bigs. You had had, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. You had Tychicus. You said, I don't know them. Read your Bible. They had John the Revelator. He pastored there. Timothy pastored there. Paul pastored there. I mean, they had the bigs. They had the studs of preaching and leadership as their pastor. Okay? So what does this... What would this letter now have to say to them? Well, let's look at Revelation chapter 2 and let's see what he has to say. Today, the church at Ephesus, today, the church at Sturkey Hills, today, you and I are going to have a, a, a physical exam, and our doctor is Dr. Jesus. Dr. Jesus is going to give us a physical exam. Now, we've all had physical exams, okay, and, and, and they're not pleasant, and as unpleasant as they are for men, they're worse for women, okay? Physical exams are no fun. Okay? So here's what Jesus says. He says, I'm going to come and give an evaluation of physical exam to the church at Ephesus first. He begins in verse 1, and he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the following. This is a solemn pronouncement of the one who has a firm grasp on the seven stars in his right hand, and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let me pause. Jesus says this. He says, listen, church at Ephesus, I'm giving you my credentials. I'm telling you how I know exactly what's going on. He's saying, I walk among the lampstands. We saw earlier the lampstands. He tells us they are the churches. They are this church and every other Bible-believing Jesus-rescued church. He says, I'm still walking among the churches. I have my Turned my back. I have not uh, stopped looking and observing and watching what you do. He says, not only that, before I give you the bad news and the good news, I want you to know the pastors, I have them in my hand. Okay? So I have the authority to tell you what the truth is. We live in a world we don't want the truth. We do not want the truth. And its truth is so hard to find. If you watch any of the news this week, you saw this. You got Dr. Ford in the other name. They've already forgot her name. That's how credible she was. I'm thinking the whole time, I've got the preconceived idea. Oh, she's got an agenda. She's just hating on the Republicans. She's she's a joke. She gets up there and gives her testimony. I'm sitting there thinking, Man, she's pretty credible. I believe she's telling the truth. Man, I hate that for old Judge Kavanaugh, but she's telling the truth. And then Judge Kavanaugh gets up there and he says, Listen, I am an innocent man. I did not do that. I'm not denying something happened to her, but something happened to her, but it was not me. I'm sitting there thinking, and he's telling the truth too. That is wrong. Both people cannot tell a different story and it be true. You see what I'm saying? Truth is somewhere, and God knows it, but we don't know exactly what that is. We live in a world we don't want truth. Our wife tells us, you know, guys, you know, your wife said you don't need to wear that shirt anymore. It didn't fit you two years ago. Okay. You don't want to hear that truth. You suck it up. Man, it's been working out. No, you ain't even eating too much. Okay? Women, you don't want to hear it when, when you say to your husband, you come in, you got a new hair color, and you say to your husband, to your husband what do you think about my hair? Uh, is, is, this a, is this a loaded question? You know. Amen. And, and, yeah. <laughs> you're talking about hair, you ain't got it. Jesus only knows truth. Jesus can only share truth. There is no confusion. There is no spin 90% truthy. There is only 100% infallible, inerrant, eternal truth. And so, Chief Doc, Jesus is going to begin to speak, and listen to what he says. He says, I'm going to give you the good news first. You know, that's what the doctor does. He's going to give you the good news first. It's like the old joke, you know, Gene reminded me of, you know, a guy uh, gets a phone call he says, hey, from your doctor visit, uh, I've got the results. He said, you want the bad news or good news first? He said, I'll take the bad news. He said, the bad news is you only have two days to live. He said, if that's the bad news, excuse me, if that's the good news, what's the bad news? And he says, I've been trying to call you for about a day and a half. <laughs> now, now, Jesus is going to give the good news first. Listen to the good news. He says, "Good news!" He says, "Church, I love you, man. I got you. I'm walking among you. I got you, leader in my hand. We're all over this. Listen, I'm gonna tell you, man, what you're doing good." He says, "I know your works. You got the works." He said, "As well as your labor, man, you're in the game and you're steadfast endurance. You just keep." Pressing on, and and that you cannot tolerate evil. You push back against every evil in this world. You even put to test those who refer to themselves as apostles, and they're not. And you've discovered that they are false. and, And I'm also aware that you have persisted steadfastly. You've endured much for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary in doing good. He says, Listen, I watch you, you are my church. I purchased you with the blood of my veins on an old wooden cross. And and you, I have purchased you, and I love you, and you're going to be my bride forever. I watch you. I listen to your music. I listen to your message. I watch every one of you who say you're a part of this local assembly. I'm watching you, and you're doing some things good. Man, you're holding fast. You're not letting the world drag you down. You're pressing on every day You get up and you try to live for me in this whole broken world. You're sharing the gospel. You're loving people. You're doing it. You're doing it. Then he says, but. That was the worst. That's the worst word. Anytime somebody's saying something good, when you hear the word but, that's a conjunction, a transition. It says, uh-oh, okay? He says, I got to tell you the whole story because I'm Jesus and I only tell the truth. He says, the rest of the story is this. I have this against you. You have left or departed from your first blood. It's the reason you got a heart. If you got a heart today like this, I want you to hold it up. The reason I gave some of y'all, y'all like the tin man. Y'all ain't got no heart. So, yeah, all right. The reason I gave you this is to remind you, all right, you can put them down, is to remind you that you're supposed to be madly in love with King Jesus. Before the service, somebody said, what are you giving these out so we can throw them at you? It's a good question. Let me tell you the answer. The answer is you can throw your heart at Jesus. That's what he wants. He wants you to throw your heart at him. Just give it. Just surrender it. Just, just throw it all in. I'm all in. Not partial. Not, not just superficially. Not halfway. He says get in love with God. He says I love you like there is no other love. And all I'm saying is. Get back to the way it was when you first got saved. Anybody remember when you first got saved, man, something was just inside you, changed? In in that moment when you met God through Jesus' Son, and maybe your heart was thumping, and you're like, man, I don't know what's going on, but it's good. Anybody ever have that experience like that with just me? I got one. Okay. And and then what happens? If you're a kid, you go back to school. Okay? And they beat you down, you know, and next thing you know, you know, the bitter patter man, is going on with Jesus. It just kind of changes. He said, I, you've, you've walked away. You've left. Now, I want you to understand something. It does not say you lost your first love. He's not lost. The church is not lost. The church is not lost their salvation. They're not, they're not separated from God, headed to hell again. No, he's still walking among them. He still has the leader in his hand. He said, but you left. You walked out on me. i want to tell you something. If you don't feel a strong presence of God in your life, lean in and listen to this. I want to tell you whose fault it is. But before I do, I want to tell you whose fault it's not. It's not your spouse. It's not your husband or your wife. It's not your kids. It's not your boss. It's not your government. It's not your, uh, your uh, uh, bank account. That's not why you don't feel the presence of God. The reason you, fa- you fail to feel a great presence of God is It's because of you. Look at your neighbor and say, it's really you. That's the truth. Somebody said amen from the darkness. Okay? Yeah, it's true. It's your fault. It's just only it is your fault. How do I know that? Because God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, all the time. He's right there. He's watching you, saying, "Hey, if you'll just, if you'll just, we're gonna see in a minute. If you'll just remember, man, where we came from. If you'll just repent of who you are, because I have, I can't repent, I can't sin, so it ain't me. If you'll just remember and repent and return to the way it was before." He said, "I'm right here, boom. I'm on you like crazy. I'm right there with you." And so I was thinking about what this looks like. Your first love, when you leave your first love, it looks like marriage. Is what it looks like. Anybody that's been married, married very long, 30 years or longer, okay, what happens is you kind of forget that, that ooey-gooey love that it started out. I scared it, baby. I hate when that happened. I love you. All right, so yesterday we conducted a wedding right here. Savannah Brogdon and Josh Howard. And so everything's cool. i Josh, man. He's a big old guy. I mean, he's, he's a lot bigger than me. And, and he's he said, "Oh, here you go. I'm ready. I'm ready for the wedding. I'm ready for the wedding." And yeah, everything's good. We came in. We're standing. I'm standing right there. He's standing right there. His dad's standing there. Door swung open. There's Savannah Brockman. She's standing there. And her, her wedding gown. And she looks. She's a beautiful girl. She looks beautiful. And he leaned over to me right there. And he goes, cool? I said, "Yeah." Man. And this time, is it Is it normal in my heart? Feel like it's cold. <laughs> I said, well, no, that's cardiac arrest. <laughs> but we got an old extension cord, we'll cut the ends up, we'll shock you, get you back. So you don't worry about it. I said, no, man, it should be normal. That's how, that's what you should feel. When somebody you're going to give your life to right. shows up, it should make your heart beat different. It should make you feel like something's going on here. Is this normal? Because this don't feel like it was when I was all, yeah, I'm ready for the wedding, before the wedding. It don't feel like that anymore, okay? So here's what happened. You have that feeling. I remember when Kendra walked down. And, 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 and we have that moment, but what we do is we leave that first love. We just walk away from that love. And then all of a sudden, things don't feel like it should be more. And it's all because we left that love. I was thinking about this, and I'm going I'm to go back. I'm going to go old school. Kendra and I started dating, in, dating in 1983. 83, man, that was a messed up season. If, so here's what happened. We met at you know, Tennessee Tech University, and I said, uh, you want to go do something this week? She said, yeah, I'll do something this week. Okay, cool. That's good. That's good. <laughs> what she didn't know was my roommates, uh, I, was a, I was a resident advisor, two of the guys in my dormitory uh, paid me $5. If I would dare to be bet me 5 bucks I wouldn't ask one of these two girls on a date. Okay. so the, but, but still, I thought she said, yes, let's go. Cool. Let's go on date. So, what I did, date night came, you know, and, and my, my goal in life was to look like John Travolta on the standalone. You know? <laughs> put on some fresh, clean underwear. That's what a guy does. Young people do that. Wear fresh underwear on the first day. It's so cool. Okay. And, then, and then, so I took a shower, got all cleaned up, and got the hair dryer out. Ooh. Some of y'all blew too hard. <laughs> it's gone. <Okay. laughs> no, I'm not. I'm gonna leave it alone after that. Okay? So, so I, so you spray your hair, man, you get that thing going, then you take some hairspray, and then you gotta put some cologne on. Okay? So if you're at home, if you're at my house, I go in the bathroom and borrow my dad's Joe Von Musk for me. Alright? Because that's man, that's a sweet aroma. But if you're at college, you use what one step better. It's called polo in a green bottle with a gold top. Polo? Green bottle with a gold top will water your eyes and burn sear your sciences. And I was thinking about this. Nobody ever told me I smelled good when I had that on, except old people. Here's why. When you get, I'm, I'm just a science. When you get old, your ability, your sniffer, gets weaker. You don't smell. As long as you get around some old people, they make your eyes water. Okay? So what? And I said, why are these old people hitting on me? Okay? Now, that was on my side. So, five, six o'clock came around, Man, the cars washed like she cared. Okay? Fresh underwear, hair all sprayed down. Brute, whatever, Old Spice, whatever, just dripping off of you, ready. All right? Meanwhile, on the other side of the fence, Kendra was getting ready. Now, I didn't check, but I'm assuming she had fresh underwear, too. I <laughs> I thought i clear that up. Her hair... It's, it's defying gravity, nothing's, nothing's touching a collar this big on her shirt, maybe some embroidery on there because it's a cool look. Hair is just floating in the air, and, and, and it was brushed back right here, had these wings. And I thought it was just a look, but I figured out on that day. What that really was, it's a defense mechanism. <laughs> if you try to get too close to her face before she's ready, she'll turn her head in, and that wing will poke your eye. Out. <laughs> okay? Now listen, all that, all that, man, for a day, for a couple hours, a dinner, a movie. Okay? And then, and then it gradually, 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 gradually just turns into apathy and just kind of a two people hanging out. Okay? I know your marriage is not like that, it never has been. I know your all is fresh and hot, just like it was on that first day. Most people, not so much. Why? Because we left our first love. And we just started doing things normal. We stopped being in love and stopped embracing and pursuing that thing that made us come together to start with. And he says, but I have this against you. You left your first love. The honeymoon is over. So so what's a good doctor going to do if he says this is what's going on good, but this is what's going on bad? He's going to give you what? A prescription, right? So he gives you a physical exam. Now he's going to offer a prescription, and this is what he says in the first part of verse 5. He says, therefore, church, Therefore, Christian, therefore, individual, he says, remember from what high state you have fallen, repent of that, and then do the deeds you did at first. So to help you remember, he says this, I want you to remember where you started, I want you to repent of the things you've done that's gotten you to where you are today, and I want you to return to that place like it was when you first started, I was thinking about. It. I got saved when I was ten years old, and man, I am so thankful to this very day that I had parents who loved me enough to have me in church, in the presence of God's word, in the presence of conviction of the Holy Spirit, in the presence of an opportunity to respond to grace. I'm I'm eternally indebted to my parents who who of all the things they did, they made sure that their family was in church. And, and on that night when I received Christ, I didn't understand it. I just walked up and told the preacher, I said, I, I don't get all that. I just know I believe he's asking me to come into his world and he wants to save me. And the preacher prayed with me. And something happened, man. I, I, was, just a, I was a 10-year-old kid. And, and I, I just remember when I prayed, the Holy Spirit came and lit something on fire. And it was the coolest thing I've ever experienced. I've never gotten over that moment. And when I turned around, I was the first one down there. And when I turned around, my older brother and six other friends followed me. I say followed me. They ended up down there too. Later, my older brother would say, only a few years ago when we were in seminary together, he said, i got a confession. I said, what? He said, I was always bitter at you. For, for what? You made straight A's. I made C's. How would you be bitter at me? You were the good kid. I was a messed up one. He said, because you got saved first. and I'm your older brother. And I said, are you serious? Now, now listen. Now listen. I remember the very next day. I went to Norris Elementary School. My teacher's name was Miss Higden. She was a rock star. And she thought I was the coolest kid in the class. All the other kids hated me because she loved me more than they more than she loved them. It's just the truth. And, uh, and I don't promote or preach favoritism, but that one worked for me. The very next day I went, I said, Hey Miss Higden, I need to talk to you. She said, Yeah, Joe said. I said, if you die today, are you going to heaven? Have you asked Jesus to save you? A big tear came down her face. She said, I have. Why did you ask myself? I got saved last night, I didn't want you to go to hell. I'm a oh. 10-year-old boy, and then I am not Okay? Then you get in middle school, all right? Then you go to middle school. Everybody's going to hell in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> if they say they say they say. I'm just kidding. If you're in middle school, you're the exception to the rule, okay? No, middle school's hard, man, and all this stuff starts coming into our life, and then you get to high school, and then you get out on your own, and, man, you just drift. And I don't know when you got saved, and I don't know where where you are today, but I want to tell you something. There is a true and living king of the universe. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's right in the middle of the churches of the lampstand. He's right in the middle holding the the pastors. And he's saying, I watch you. I know what happened when I saved you. We need to get back to that place. And so here's what he says. Just remember, repent. And return. Okay, now, he, he goes on like any good doctor would do. He says, that's the prescription based on the phys- results of the physical exam. He says, now, I'm going to give you a prognosis. A prognosis is a forecast of what's going to take place if you don't respond to the prescription. Okay? So, so, so if I'm not, but if I was diagnosed with diabetes. And then the doctor says, do- uh, Joel, listen, bro. He says, you're 25 pounds overweight. I say, thanks for noticing. I had not noticed. Okay? He says, so here's what can happen. You can lose 25 pounds and not treat your diabetes. Or you can stay the same size you are based on the results of the test and you can start taking a pill that will help control your insulin. But if you don't lose weight and if you continue on the path you're on, you'll ultimately give yourself a shot and it will cause problems down the road. So I get to respond and he gives me a prognosis if I don't respond to the prescription. So here's what Dr. Jesus says in verse 5b. He says, If not, if you don't remember, repent, and return, he says, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place. That is, if you don't repent. He says, listen, I'm going to make it very clear. If you remember, repent, and return, everything's going to be fine. I'm going to restore your your, uh, witness. I'm going to restore your influence. But if you don't, I'm going to take your lampstand, and I'm going to take it and put it away. Now, this is what's amazing. Jesus is the one who builds the church. Jesus is the one who saved you. You could not save you. He came to save you because you could not save you. Jesus said, as far as the church and this this group of believers, the group of my children that I've saved, He says, I am going to build my church. Nobody else is going to build a church. The preacher's (laughs) not going to build a church. The deacons not going to build a church. Somebody with a billion dollars is not going to build a church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. So here he is standing in the church. He says, you remember? I said, I will build my church. I'm the one that controls the church. So if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, I'll shut it down because it's my church. It's not yours. I'll remove that lampstand, your influence, your power, all that you do, all that you hope to do, I will take it away if you don't remember Repent." And return. Now, let me just spin the table forward. Did the church at Ephesus listen to Jesus' counsel regarding this? No, they did not. Remember what I said? Amazing harbor? Amazing roads, amazing temple to a false lowercase G goddess. Okay, amazing population, an amazing city, the New York City of Asia Minor. Go to Turkey, modern-day Turkey today, and they'll take you right to Ephesus. You know what's there? No temple. One of the seven wonders of the world back then. No temple, no homes, no residence, no harbor. God filled the harbor with silt and residue and closed up the harbor. Listen, when God says, I'll do this, if you'll do this, if you don't do this, I'll do this, he means it. And when he does it, you cannot push back. You don't have a shovel big enough to clean out the harbor when God says, I'm shutting it down. I don't want to be that church. I don't want to be that church with 12 and a half people. I don't want to be the church at Ephesus one day where it's just gone. Listen, I, I don't know how long I'm going to live. I might live the rest of the day. He might look to live another 30 years. I don't know. But I want this church to be what it was. What God placed it here to be, a beacon on this hill. You show me a church anywhere where you can drive up on the parking lot, look out, and see almost a thousand homes. I'll give you $100 for everyone you show shown because they don't exist, okay? This is a, a God put a church here and it's, it's not just about the preacher. It's all of you. It's all of us being madly in love with King Jesus and doing what he says to do. Amen. Well, not only is there a prognosis, then there's a promise. He says, but now, I'm going to go back to that word. I'm going to go positive again. And Dr. Jesus says, but... You do have this thing going for you. You hate what the Nicolaitans practice, And those practices I also hate. Now we don't know a ton about the Nicolaitans, but they were false teachers in the church, in the region. And they pushed back against that. And he says, now, church, I've given you the story. I've given you a a physical exam. I've, I've, I've told you what the deal is. I've given you a prescription. I've given you a prognosis. He says, and now... He said, I'm going to give you a promise. He says, the one who has a ear, has an ear, had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, just listen. And if you today, church, and if you today, individual in the church, have has just been described in this passage where you've left your first love, you're worried about a whole lot of stuff. But the first love, Jesus in your life. It's just not on the top of the list. If the shoe fits, wear it. Just take it and respond to it. And then he says this. He says, because if you do, he says, to the one who conquers, I will permit him to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Now, right here is an odd verse because it almost sounds like it's on me. Like if I do good enough, if I act good enough, if I am perfect, then I get to eat of the tree of life, I get to go to heaven. That's not what it's saying at all. Because the same author that is pinning this scripture also wrote 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. And here's what he tells us in 5 about who conquers. He says in 5, 5, he said, Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes. That Jesus is the Son of God. That's who overcomes the world. So if you're here today, and I want you to know, this is not talking about losing your salvation. This is not talking about um, one day being saved and the next day not being saved. He's saying, listen, you put your life now and eternally, eternally, in Jesus. He'll hold you and He'll protect you and He'll love you. Listen, He loves you today. If you're lost, maybe you're here today and you've never received Jesus, you've maybe said a prayer, you maybe had a religion, you maybe checked the box, but Jesus is not the Lord of your life. You have not surrendered to Him to be your Savior and Lord. He loves you anyway. He loves you anyway. And He can't love you anymore because His love is because His love is... You're unlovable to a, to a perfect God, but He loves you anyway. And when you get saved, it's not like now I'm saved, He loves me like twice as much as those that aren't saved. No, He still loves you the same. His love is, is infinite, flatline infinite, not based on you, based on Him. Right. So what it means is when, when we get this right, when we give our lives to Jesus, not just our, as Jesus in my heart, that's awesome. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we give our being, all that we are, to King Jesus and say, do with it what you want to do with it. He'll hold you, and He'll love you, He'll discipline you, but He'll always draw you closer. His goal is for you to always get closer to who He is. I want you to back here. I just want to ask you a a question. A very sobering question. If Jesus stood before you today, because he does, he's omnipresent. And if Jesus did a physical exam on your heart today, would he say, wow, that's my child they are madly in love with me, the one who has done everything for me? Or would he say, that's my child, but they've left that first love. They're not who they were in that moment when they got saved. Or would he say, that's not my child at all. They've never received our gift of grace. And so in this room, there's people in all of those categories. And most of us are in category two and three. Either we've left the greatness of that.